This is Chapter 126 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we witness history through the eyes of a child. Do me a favor and think back to the time when you were 13. Hanging out with friends was probably your top priority, or maybe you were more concerned with doing well at school. Dealing with the changes your body was going through was tough and sometimes embarrassing. You probably were really worried about doing something stupid in front of that guy or girl you had a crush on, or maybe you were more concerned about standing out in the crowd. Now, couple all that with a famous parent and a pretty tense time in our country's history, and you've hit upon what Sharon Robinson was going through in 1963. That year, the civil rights movement was gaining steam and there was a certain amount of unrest. The daughter of baseball legend Jackie Robinson, Sharon has written a book for young readers about that year of her life. Our Peter Haskell spoke with her about Child of the Dream, a memoir of 1963. Let me ask you, why did you write specifically about 1963? I wanted this particular story because I was 13 when when I had my own epiphany around uh, the civil rights movement and racism in this country. And I was able to start to find my voice. And I wanted kids to be able to see that change within me. So I've been running this program with Major League Baseball for 24 years, where I'm asking kids to show me how when they met up with an obstacle in their, or barrier in their lives, how they, the process by which they're pulling themselves out of it or, you know, have already, you know, moved move past this particular barrier. And they have to, they tell it in a essay. And so we have this national essay contest. And then I go out and reward them, not because, you know, so much it didn't matter to me what the severity of the barrier. It was really showing how they showed the process. So we understand their growth. And I wanted to do that same thing back to them for them to show my own growth from being a real shy girl in elementary school, very, very um, beaten down by being different in school, by being the only black girl in my school, and the comments kids would make, kids would make to me. So I had to pull myself out of that shyness, because that's how it manifested itself, and be able to speak up, and, and that was critical to myself, you know, to my developing self-esteem and self-confidence. And that's what I want kids to see that, you know, we, we all go through this process. So you were 13. What was happening mm-hmm. in your life then, and, and, and what kind of connection did you feel to these children in the South? Well, Peter, we were, I lived in Stanford, Connecticut, so this is you know, over a thousand miles away in the north, and people often, often think that the civil rights movement was only about um, ending Jim Crow South, you know, the, the segregation in the South. But we also had, had segregation uh, in the north. In our community, uh, my brothers and I, we were the first blacks in our school or the only blacks in our school. Um, and, you know, we had different challenges than the kids in the South, but it was still in, impacting our psyche, you know, making us feel less than who we were. And we had to sort of battle against that. Um, but in around 1963, we were actually talking in Stanford, Connecticut about busing um, for our high school years. Uh, they were starting their desegregation plan uh, with high school in Stanford. And I lived in a white community, so I 
found out that I was going to be bused along with my white neighbors downtown to the predominantly black school to integrate it. So it was a, um, you know, a time when I'm already struggling with becoming an adolescent. Uh, I was very worried about that because my brother had had, had such a hard adolescence. Um, so I, I was worried what mine was going to be like. And then also I had to deal with uh, this whole desegregation of schools in Stanford, Connecticut as well. When you look back at that time now, what, what, how, how did that help you become the person that you are now? Um, completely. Um, first of all, my father at that point basically defined our family mission, my, my parents, I should say. You know, they, my dad came back from Birmingham after being very active down there, and he said to us, and we'd been t- speaking, talking about it as, you know, as a family and watching the news on television each night, um, so, and we wanted to be a part of it in some way. So my dad came back and he said, you know, I hope that you will, to my brothers and I, and, or after dinner, you know, I hope that you'll find work that you love and keep family and God as a priority, but we're also going to have a family mission. And that family mission is essentially social change. And so at that point, we started being a participant uh, in his efforts to raise money for the civil rights movement. Um, we had our first jazz concert at our home in Stanford, Connecticut. And, you know, my younger brother and I literally sold hot dogs and sodas along with our friends to the guests as, and, and produced money, you know, that could be added to the overall pot. Um, so that made us very excited. Um, and then we as a family went to the March on Washington. So it started there and continued after my father died. Uh, my brother and I are on the board of directors, and my mom are on the board of directors of the Jackie Robinson Foundation, and we have both found work that we love, but we have also dedicated our lives to others and, you know, doing service for other people. What did your father tell you about how and why he was involved in civil rights? I mean, obviously, he was in the middle of this in terms of baseball, but beyond baseball, what what made him compelled, and when did he become really active in this? Well, you know, um, Peter, my dad was always an activist, and, you know, you have to sort of look back at his life um, from when he was a teenager in Pasadena and a young boy in Pasadena, and they wouldn't let, allow black black and brown kids to swim in the public swimming pool, to when he went to the um, Army and was uh, court-martialed for refusing to move to the back of the bus. So he'd always been an activist. Anyway, so so when he was in baseball, then he, he was – you know, stood up for himself after he, his two years of silence, <laughs> um, you know, in the first two years when he entered baseball, he then, Brent Rickey said, you are, you know, free to be who you are. And my dad was always defending against plays that he felt were wrong or whatever. So the activism was, was in his, his baseball career. And when he retired from baseball, the civil rights movement was heating up and he built into his contract with Truffle Nuts, his employer, that he would could go and travel and raise funds and participate in the civil rights movement. So it started, you know, probably um, very focused when he was post-baseball, but I'd say it was very much a part of his life. There have been a lot of books written about your dad. What do you think people might learn that they hadn't heard before from this book? Well, you know, most people know about his baseball career, but what surprises them 
is his activism, his formal activism. Many people don't realize that, that he played a role in the civil rights movement or that he worked alongside Dr. King. Children are like, they're just blown away when I show a picture of my dad, dad and Dr. King together. You know, they just don't know that side of him. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that, I'm, that I, I've been able to show the man that I actually knew better than I knew the baseball player because I was too young to know him as a baseball player. I knew he played baseball, but I didn't understand the story of, of him breaking down segregation in baseball or, or, you know, I didn't understand his stats and, you know, the whole bit. I didn't understand. Um, that's something I, I, underst- I, I came to understand as I, you know, in the process of growing and, and learning more about him. But um, so I, I really wanted, uh, I think that's one important thing. Um, the other thing that I tried to be in Child of a Dream, I wanted to be really open and honest with young people about my own fears about adolescence and why it was a fear and, you know, how I've seen early signs of my own my own rebellion and just simple things like um, riding my horse bareback when, I, when my mom had asked me to use the saddle. You know, that's... You know, you know, as a girl with my own mind and, uh, you know, very strong, uh, strong and, and in myself at home and with my horse. Uh, and I was much shyer at school and had to grow into some kind of confidence at school. But, uh, you know, I wanted to share that with kids because they see me as a confident adult and I wanted them to know that it's a journey for all of us. Right. One of the things uh, that you write about in the book is the anticipation and excitement of meeting Martin Luther King. So much so. What what was that like for you, and what are you trying to convey in the book about it? Well, it was um, for us. I mean, we'd met many celebrities, so it's not like I, you know, I hadn't met celebrities. But Dr. King was elevated in our our home. And in our minds, uh, to something that wasn't celebrity status, it was it was something much more regal than that. Um, so to have him actually, and we'd seen him at the March on Washington. Uh, so to have him actually come to our home, and then we were nervous because we had elevated, put him on this pedestal. Um, it, you know, what is it going to be like when he comes? You know, will we be able to talk to him? And he turned out to be such a down-to-earth person, not, you know, with us as kids. And, um, you know, my dad had talked about with him about us. So he, you know, right away he was already connected to us in a, in a you know, very basic parental kind of way and, and had a certain love for us and conveyed that. But then he, he the way he was with, at the jazz concert at our home, he was very comfortable wandering through the grounds and just stopping and talking to people. And then he got on the stage and was chatting with the musicians and just having a good time and being a very normal person. And then he spoke to us. And again, that elevated person that we you know, knew and understood from the March on Washington, there he was on the stage and we were looking at him saying, and he talked about the sacrifice and the greatest sacrifice he talked in the movement was the sacrifice of life and so um that's he became again that orator that we had such respect for and leader 
You talk about and you write about your father's activism. When you see athletes today shy away from these kinds of things, yeah. what do you think? And do they have a responsibility to speak up? Well, it's a tough it's a tough thing, you know, because when they do, there's consequences. Um, so many of them have found ways to uh, address issues that they that they're passionate about by setting up their own foundations, which is very different from my father's era. You know, the athletes didn't set up a foundation; they didn't make any money. Right. I mean, they made money, right. but they were not the 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 wealthy athletes of today. But these athletes are so wealthy um, if they have that internal um, desire to help other people, they do it uh, by setting up a foundation. And, and that's, that I res- have great respect for. I remember when Derek Jeter first came in the league, and uh, within two years he had set up his foundation and had invited me to, uh, and Alex Rodriguez and Jackie Joanna Kersey to meet him in, in his family, meet them in Michigan, and let's get to work. And we were working with young people. And, you know, we went from place to place talking to young people as a group. And so, you know, and, and that foundation is, you know, still continuing and run by his sister. And, and he, so um, they have that. And then those who protest. Because that's a different stage. There's those who are taking some action about around um, something they believe in, and, and there are those athletes who take it a different way and feel like their voice is, is critical. It's critical that they use their voice now. They're not willing to wait until they're, they have less power. They're willing to use their voice now as, as an athlete to stand up against um, so, a social wrong. Um, and that's to me very impressive. And my dad tried to get athletes when when he was involved in the civil rights movement. He tried to get current athletes to stand up with him, go travel south with him, go on marches with him. And it was often only um, the boxers, um, because the boxers are individuals, and you know they're not part of a team, and there's there's less restriction on their their you know who they who they're who they are as athletes and who they are as people so they can be more vocal. And so in 1963, it was then. I'm curious, when you look at the current environment in this country with hate crimes on the rise and bias and, and a hatred, what is your take and are there parallels you see to your childhood? Absolute, absolute parallels. Sometimes it's funny when I'm talking to the kids about 1963 I stop and I go, does this sound familiar? You know, I mean, even if you talk about church bombings, or, you know, or, or burning down of churches. A little scary. It is A scary, lot scary. You know? Yes. So what I say to them is that's why we, you need to, we need you to be our hope. You are our hope. Because if you lift your voice against injustice, you know, we can kind of work together on this, you know, and, and you know, we did in, in during the civil rights movement, we got laws changed, but I said, my dad always told me, you know, you can't legislate against hate. So it's really, we need to change perception and, and um, a willingness for diversity, um, a willingness to see people as people and, you know, kind of work together to have a strong country. And I tell you, I went to Birmingham, my first stop on my book tour this year, Peter. 
they took me to a totally integrated school. And, you know, so that is the hope. You know, yes, we have made some progress. Um, and we need you to continue to make progress, and you need to understand history as part of that, you know, so you'll know that if you don't lift your voice, you can, uh, people can can be um, beaten down and, you know, uh, brought you know, nearly to destruction, as we've seen repeated in history over and over again. So we have to fight back. That's the point. You have to fight back. And you fight back with confidence, you fight back self-confidence, you fight back by um, caring about other people and caring about the world, and you fight back by um, getting uh, voting when you're old enough and being able to have a voice that way. So I, t- I sort of give them ways that, that they can continue to grow and to fight back. I want to ask you about the Jackie Robinson Museum, which will be opening yes. soon here in New York. Tell us about it. Um, so we're in the you know build out phase, and the, a lot of the um, planning has happened around the education component, and also what kinds of um, exhibits we're going to have. We've had a traveling exhibit this entire year because it is a centennial of my of my dad's birth, and so we're very excited at at the foundation. Our family's very excited because it will be a way to continue the dialogue um, with children and adults. When do you expect it will open, and what kind of exhibits have been traveling, and do you have an idea of what's going to be in the museum itself? Yes, I I have an idea. Um, It's going to have a physical uh, component um, around his baseball career, where we will actually be setting up a baseball diamond, but it, it's going to be more designed for um, education. And then we will have uh, actual um, exhibit of his memorabilia as well as um, uh, interactive components to it that will focus more around character. And then we are going to have some meeting space and, and lecture space uh we're actually going to have an area that's a tribute to my mom. Um, they're actually recreating the office she had at the foundation for many, many years. And uh, she also she is the founder of the Jackie Robinson Foundation. My dad's partner, a partner with my, you know, mom and dad, great partnership. And she's a mother and a great-grandmother and a grandmother. And so all of that will be also featured in the museum. Your dad broke baseball's color barrier in 1947. How much of his impact in a history do you think is about baseball, and how much of is it? How much of it is the other activism you've described? Oh, I, he would not have been able to be the activist that he was if if he hadn't had a baseball career and hadn't broken the color barrier in Major League Baseball. So they are they work hand in hand. His athleticism and his uh, activism. You know, he's always struggling for excellence, and, and that comes out in, in both areas. The book is Child of the Dream, a memoir of 1963. It's written by Sharon Robinson, Jackie Robinson's daughter. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us. No, oh, thank you, Peter. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. Next time, we're giving children's books their due, including a remake of a kid's classic. 
As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Chernkovich.